Is your conscience clear this morning? Is your conscience clear to speak God's word to a fellow church member struggling with sin? Is your conscience clear to be a representative of Christ to the people you are meeting today? Is your conscience clear to be here to meet with God? I trust some of us come with conscience stained. Some may be plagued with shame. Some may come to this service out of guilt or perhaps out of fear. Fear of the consequences of not going to church. The temptation is often to repair our conscience by our own standards using our own means. Perhaps even coming to church this morning is a concerted effort to cleanse your conscience convicting you. That if we come to Him, He will cleanse us, even our conscience. That because our conscience can be cleansed, we can draw near to God boldly to enjoy His goodness, not because of us, but in spite of us. So let's pray. Father, help us to taste and see that you are good, that Christ is good, that the covenant Christ established is good, that we may draw ever closer to you. Amen. The big question the author of Hebrews has been trying to explain the past few Sunday sermons is, why should we, with confidence, draw near to God? The answers so far have included because Christ is the better high priest, because being compared to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, meaning the king of righteousness and the king of peace, Christ is not only a high priest, he is also a king. And what we heard last Sunday, we Pew Bible in uh, page 945, page 945. Our chapter 9 will go further into why the new covenant is better than the first covenant. The big idea for today's sermon is earthly things can't cleanse our conscience before God. Only Christ can. You can follow along the outline given in the ministry guide in page 6 and 7. We'll be using the ministry guide uh, a lot or refer to the, to the projector. The last verse of last week's chapter 8, verse 13, gives us the context for our chapter 9 today. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So why is the first covenant made obsolete? Let's go to our first point. Because earthly things can't cleanse our conscience. Let me read from verse 1 to 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread having the golden altar of incense 
and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places of Reformation. Here, we are reminded of two Old Testament concepts, the tabernacle and the Day of Atonement. Unlike the audience for the book of Hebrews, we don't wake up thinking that we need to go to the tabernacle this Saturday or we should buy a goat for the Day of Atonement next month. Those two concepts are foreign to our culture. So let's quickly revise. You can refer to the ministry guide, guide, uh, page 7. There you can find a diagram of the tabernacle. There is the outer courtyard, open field. Then there is a tent that has two sections. The first section is called the holy place. And the second, the most holy place or the holy of holies. In order to enter the second section, one must enter through the first section because the second section is holier than the first. The second section is where God's presence is supposed to dwell once a year in the presence of one person representative. But notice, there is physical separation between the outer courtyard with everything inside the tent. Common people cannot enter the tent, let alone the most holy place. So, while God may be present at the centre of the crowd on that special day every year, common people are separated physically and by a distance from God's presence. The sacrifice is done outside, but the blood is brought inside with sweet incense as a pleasing aroma unto God. The sin is bloody and messy because sin is messy and demands blood. The second concept we need to revise is the Day of Atonement from Leviticus chapter 16, which was read in part by Pacien. It is a special day once a year when the high priest enters the most holy place wearing certain holy garments. He has to sacrifice animals for burnt offering, scapegoat, and sin offering both for himself and his household and for the people. Burnt offering is for general atonement of sin. The scapegoat is to be sent away into the wilderness, into the desert, either to, the, to die starving or eaten by wild animals. Sin offering 
is for cleansing unintentional sins or sins they are not high-handed or sins they are not meant to harm others. Essentially, all the animals act as substitutes for us. What happened to those animals should have happened to us instead. So those are the two concepts central to Jewish lives and required to our understanding of the Old Covenant, and as we are going to see, its insufficiency. Those things may not be our past rituals personally, uh, but if you come from another religion that has cleansing rituals, sacrificial rituals, or a once-a-year festival when the devotees are cleansed from, the imp- from impurities, you can think of those two if that's helpful for you. But generally, we all struggle with a concept of sacrifice in one way or another, especially when we are faced with guilt, shame, fear. We either recluse ourselves, essentially sacrificing ourselves, or wallow in self-pity, essentially considering ourselves as a sacrifice, blame others, essentially sacrificing others, find excuses, essentially sacrificing whatever thing we can find, or go above the system, essentially denying the righteous God who will judge sinners. This shows that we are made with a conscience to know right from wrong, and that wrong ought to be made right. I think the author of Hebrews specifically mentioned unintentional sins in verse 7, intentionally, reminding his audience that sin offering sacrifice on the Day of Atonement only cleanses their unintentional sins. And a proper reaction to it is, oh no, I'm not fully cleansed. And that's the point. The old covenant is insufficient to cleanse us. Even the high priest himself needs cleansing. Let's now quickly turn to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 to 31, where we find categories for unintentional sins and high-handed sins. Verse 27 to 31. Uh, It's in page 115. Let me read for us verse 27 to 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Verse 30, pay attention. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord, and has broken his commandment. 
that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. In the Old Covenant, those who commit high-handed sins have no way of being cleansed. Their just reward is to be cut off. To be cut off carries the same connotation as to go to hell today. That's how serious it is. Beloved, is any of us capable of claiming that you have only committed unintentional sins? No wonder then that the author of Hebrews says in verse 9 that all this arrangement cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. How can it cleanse the conscience if they don't deal with all my sins? The time when I said mean things to a friend to punish him for his mistake. The time when I shared an embarrassing experience of a friend to make him look bad. All the, gl- all the guilt that comes from regretting all those ill intents. It can't. Just as what said in verse 8, as long as the entire old covenant sacrificial system is still standing, not just then in the past, but now, in our hearts, in our minds, there's no way for our conscience to be cleansed. Furthermore, the old covenant is all about earthly things, meaning physical things, created things. It has earthly tabernacle, earthly special items inside the tabernacle, earthly ceremonies, earthly sacrifices, earthly priests, earthly efforts. All these earthly things can only deal with external things. It can only cleanse outwardly. Again, no wonder that all earthly things involved in the old covenant system cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. Conscience is within, inside us, a location that earthly things can't reach, let alone cleanse. Beloved, are we relying on earthly things, earthly efforts to cleanse our conscience, to make us feel better about ourselves? I'm always busy at work, but at least I bring my kids to playground on weekends. I may not be the best parent when I was younger, but I'll show that I'm I'm a great grandparent to my grandkids. I'm not regular in Sunday gathering, but at least I'm faithful in my own outside Bible study. I'm not walking with anyone, but at least I'm serving in five ministries. I heard a lot of people, but look, I got into Harvard. We keep on punishing ourselves or someone, something, when Christ has taken all the punishments for us. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing about right or wrong. We need to be close friends first before I can tell you for sure if what you are doing is right or wrong. But the question is this. What do we turn to when our conscience convicts us? Do we turn to earthly achievements, earthly excuses, earthly punishments, 
earthly sacrifices? Oh, how frail our hope is if we turn to earthly sacrifices that will always change and get updated. Yes, you may need to do some restitution, some reparation to fix relationships, but do it because you have come to Christ and are now cleansed. Do it with a clear conscience. Don't do it to cleanse your conscience. As long as the tent is still standing, not just in the past, but now in our hearts, our minds, we will still have no access to the real presence of God that's heavenly, that can cleanse to the innermost. Because He is inside the tent and we are stuck outside the tent, depending on our earthly schemes to mediate. Like the priests who keep on dying, earthly schemes keep on changing and getting updated. The Old Covenant is not all bad if we understand its real purpose. That is, to anticipate a better covenant. The Old Covenant sacrifices should make people think, oh, they are insufficient. So, I should trust God to provide for the sufficient one. As we are reminded for the insufficiency of the Old Covenant system, we should be grateful for what Christ has done that has established the new covenant for us. The time of reformation is here. So our second point, only Christ can cleanse our conscience. Let me read the rest of the chapter from verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant 
that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. For Christ has entered not, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the th- true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for men to die once and and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Last week, we were introduced to the idea of a tent and sacrificial system that's just a copy and shadow of the real thing in heaven. And this morning, we learned that it's talking about the old covenant earthly tent with all its special items and ceremonies, only a copy and shadow. Christ also has entered into a tent, but into a tent that's greater and more perfect. The real tent, the heavenly tent, the basis for the earthly tent served by the Levitical priest. The tent that's not made with hands, not of this creation, not earthly. Such superior tent cannot accept earthly things, earthly priests, earthly sacrifices. It requires superior high priest and superior sacrifice. The high priest is Christ himself, superior to the Levitical priest because he is truly God, truly man, and after the order of Melchizedek. Unlike the Levitical high priest who has to sacrifice a sin offering for his own sin, Christ doesn't need to since he has none. The sacrifice that acts as our substitute is also Christ himself, who lived an unblemished life and yet sacrificed once for all for sinners who repent and trust in him. Surely he's superior to animals, even humans, since he's no less than God. Christ outweighs them all. His sacrifice is superior, his blood is superior. As verse 12 says, the once for all sacrifice of Christ secures a redemption 
that's not just for one day or for a year that he needs to repeat it every year, but forever, eternal. It doesn't just cleanse us from one kind of sins, like the Day of Atonement is only for unintentional sins, or a few kinds of sins, or most kinds of sins, or even almost all kinds of sin. But it cleanses us Christians from all kinds of sins. Intentional kind, unintentional kind, high-handed kind, underhanded kind, constructive kind, voluntary kind, involuntary kind, premeditated kind, negligent kind, defensive kind, ignorant kind, and all kinds in between. No wonder then, if the earthly sacrifices, earthly rituals and ceremonies can purify the flesh, cleanse the external, how much more then the unblemished sacrifice of Christ can purify not just the outside, but even the innermost. It can cleanse our conscience. Listen to how the author of Hebrews put it. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Christ can purify our conscience so that we can serve, we can worship the living God. All of, all of our earthly efforts, earthly achievements, earthly excuses are called dead works. Just like animal sacrifices can never sufficiently purify our conscience to serve the living God, all our earthly efforts are also, they are useless, dead works. Beloved, perhaps whenever we feel guilty, embarrassed, afraid, it's actually a call sign that reminds us, come to Christ, my son. Come to Christ, my daughter. He can cleanse you. Perhaps the feeling of guilt, shame, fear is God's grace if we know how to respond as a true follower of Christ. Verse 15. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Because of Christ's sacrificial and intercessory work on our behalf, Christ has established the new covenant for us. For us who, in chapter 8 last week, have God's law in written in our minds and hearts. For us who, Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, describes as having a new heart of flesh and God's spirit within us. This is talking about Christians. A covenant that's no longer dependent on our faithfulness since it has been guaranteed by Christ's faithfulness. Beloved, when we are burdened, do we come to ourselves or other humans who often lack faithfulness? Or do we come to Christ who is always faithful? 
the ESV translators choose to explain the concept of covenant in verses 15 to 18 this way. Follow, follow with me. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I think the explanation here is straightforward. The author is comparing covenant to last will. Essentially, he's saying that Christ must die for his will to take effect so that the beneficiaries, the, test, uh, the testators, us Christians, can receive the promised eternal inheritance. The emphasis is on inheriting from the one who has died willfully. Straightforward. I'm satisfied if that's what you take away about covenant. But I think there's a better way to translate verse, verses 15 to 18 and how to understand them. I'll take the legacy standard version to represent what I mean. Yeah, you can refer to the ministry guide, verse 7, for a comparison table or the screen. Let me read for us. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The word will in ESV verses 16 and 17 is actually covenant in the original language. Some slight nuance here. The one who must die is actually not Christ, but men. I won't bore you with the details, but consistent with the substitutionary sacrifice theme before and after this passage, this version emphasizes on the substitutionary aspect of Christ's death. That even at the establishment of the new covenant, it wasn't an animal that's supposed to die. It's us, men, humans. This better covenant cannot accept inferior sacrifice, animals. It demands either superior sacrifice or the sinners themselves, us. Just like the old covenant was inaugurated with animals' blood, the new covenant was supposedly inaugurated with humans' blood. But wasn't 
because Christ took our place. Because Christ has died in our place, the new covenant is established. And we Christians receive the promised eternal inheritance in His place. Beloved, if you know that the covenant of Christ is way superior to the covenant of earthly things, why do we want to be tempted by the inferior covenant? Why do we want to go back to the inferior covenant? Beloved, let's just pause for a moment to savor what Christ has done on behalf of us and in favor of us. And consider with me for a moment. Each one of us is a beneficiary of the eternal inheritance from the last will that Christ has left for us. Each one of us is a beneficiary of the substitutionary sacrifice that Christ has suffered in our place. What an amazing grace. Is our life characterized by self-sacrifice? Is GBC known for our forgiveness to one another? Is Grace Baptist Church well known for its namesake, Grace, because we have received the amazing grace of Christ? Are we known to the world as the ambassadors for this better covenant Christ has established? Brothers and sisters, we have been bought and cleansed, not just by some poor, unfortunate animals happened to be picked this year. We have been bought and cleansed by none other than the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, the King of Kings. Beloved, let's savor that. Let's meditate on that so that our lives may be characterized by it. Verse 20, quotes Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. Let me read for us. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Just as Moses sprinkled the animal's blood, the blood of the old covenant, onto the people to consecrate them, and then the high priest must regularly sprinkle them again and again to re-consecrate them regularly. Christ sprinkles his own blood, the blood of the better covenant, once for all. That if we are in Christ, we are consecrated. Not just for a period of time, but as long as we are in him. Verse 24, Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Remember the scapegoat released to the wilderness to represent the sinners during the Day of Atonement? Christ, who has gone on our behalf, has entered not the wilderness, but the heaven. 
not to die starving or eaten by wild animals, but to be in the presence of God. And unlike the poor goats that need to be scapegoated every year, Christ needs to be scapegoated just once. And He has gone to a better destination. He's in heaven now to prepare a place for us if we are His people. So here's the summary of the second point. Only Christ can cleanse our conscience because He can cleanse all sins and all kinds of sins. He has mediated a sacrificial system that is of heaven. He offered a perfect substitutionary sacrifice of Himself. He has established the perfect new covenant. He has consecrated us with His precious blood. He has gone into heaven to prepare a place for us. Beloved, my prayer is that by now, you have been convinced of the goodness of Christ's work and the new covenant He established. That you are convinced that you can come to Him and Him alone when you lack clear conscience. Instead of waiting for a festival that happens once a year to cleanse our conscience, perhaps by then we are not bothered any longer. Perhaps by then our conscience has been damaged. We can come to Christ anytime and immediately. We can go to Him at 3 a.m. when our troubled minds keep us up. We can go to Him at 8 a.m when we are dreading the workday ahead. We can go to Him at 3 p.m. when we are home alone, feeling lonely, when we are exhausted from taking care of the kids. We can go to Him at 8 p.m. when after a long, tiring day, we struggle to love our spouse. Beloved, Consider also how we treat others. Do we weaponize conscience to make our loved ones, especially those with weaker conscience, to feel bad about themselves? Perhaps when we are upset, when you are disappointed, when you don't get the comfort that you expect. If you are a leader in some capacity, you might be prone to this. I know I'm guilty of that. It's so easy to make my wife feel bad about her mistakes, her shortcomings, her weaknesses, to add to her disappointments. And it's so difficult to point her to Christ where she can be cleansed of her disappointments when I'm upset. It's so difficult to point myself to Christ when I'm upset. Or if you have weaker conscience, do you require others to check the boxes to prove if they are true Christians? Oh, if you are a true Christian, you must get vaccinated. You must be involved in humanitarian efforts. You must wear certain attire to serve on the stage. Is the most holy place 
still separated from the common people? Please hear me well, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying that we can do whatever we want. No. But we must distinguish matters of regulation from matters of wisdom. If we make a suggestion because it's wise, it edifies the body of Christ, we should do that. But if we make a suggestion as a test of faith, oh, I pray that we are so, so careful about testing others, lest we, we ourselves fall short. Beloved, we may think that not having clear conscience is just about guilt, shame, fear. But having clear conscience demands obedience to live out our faith. Now that we know that the covenant is superior, that Christ's work can and does cleanse our conscience to the uttermost, do we then come to God in Christ? Do we join ourselves to a local community of a new covenant? Friends, if you haven't joined a local church, may I encourage you to seriously consider joining one? We, on our own, sometimes can forget that we can come to Christ for cleansing. But we, together, can remind one another and guard each other as we share our lives together. Do we regularly attend our church gatherings when we actually can? Do we listen to our church leaders even when we may have different preference from them? Do we persevere, especially when temptation to give up is just so great? Do we listen to exhortation from God's Word if we don't, I fear that we may not only stain our conscience, but we'll also sear and damage our conscience when sustained for too long, irreparably. So let me encourage us, don't dull our conscience. Obey, obey God's holy word. For you here, who have so far resisted Christianity, rejecting Christ, but are still listening nonetheless, I thank you for listening in. Friends, we understand your feeling of guilt, shame, fear, because we also experience them. We are also fellow human beings, after all. Our natural solutions of self-improvement, or try-harder, or distraction, can't work because our problems always evolve. They always demand solutions that always evolve too. There's no end to it. Perhaps you are here because you've hit the end of the line, or perhaps you haven't. Let me tell you that you will hit the end of the line. God has made us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, not to live in guilt, shame, fear, but because of sins, our sins, and other people's sins, 
all of us suffer. We may suffer differently, perhaps to different extents, but we all suffer. In the days of old, God provided a priestly system to approach Him. In His great mercy, God also has given us all conscience, helping us to sense that perhaps it's a good idea to come to Him to seek right and wrong. But those things don't resolve our problems because those things aren't meant to resolve our problems. Those things are meant to point us to Christ, the King of Kings who has humbled himself